may be seated. Hallelujah. I'm going to start in 1 Timothy chapter 2. We are, our nation that is, are at a crossroads. And we've got an election coming up in a few days that will determine the course of our country. I don't believe there's ever been an election that's more important than this one in all of America's history because it'll set the course for whether we shall follow the founding father's vision of a free land or whether we shall alter course to take us into or at least toward socialism. I've been surprised this week at the number of pastors and ministers that have recommended to their people that they just not vote. The reasons they give are such that our president doesn't have the character to account for our support. I'm not sure who, who to attribute it to. I think it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a Christian pastor that finally was taken captive and killed by the Nazi administration of Hitler. But I believe it was him that said the only thing that's necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Folks, God caused this nation to be established for a reason. There's never been another country in the history of the world that's done more to spread the gospel around the world than America. The amount of finances and resources that have been made available by this great nation of ours is completely unrivaled. Nobody else does even a, a fraction of what America does to spread the gospel. And certainly, the outstanding characteristic, the reason why we're able to do so is because of the freedom that we have, the freedom that our forefathers saw and put in place. But all that can go away in a hurry. I think that as a whole, as a people, we have probably taken for granted the freedoms that we have. But I'm convinced of this. It won't take any time at all for us to realize what we've lost if we lose it. Paul wrote to Timothy, his son in the faith, his closest ministry companion, and said, I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. 
For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's the will of God for everybody to be saved. But you know as well as I do that not everybody will be. Jesus died for the sins of the world. He died for your sins and my sins. But he also died for the sins of those that will never accept him. He paid the price for them as well. It's interesting to me here also that Paul makes a distinction between being saved and coming to the knowledge of the truth. Now you certainly can't be saved unless you come to the knowledge of the truth of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. But that's just the beginning. There's a lot more truth to become established in and to, and to learn than just the new birth. Jesus made the same distinction in John chapter 8 when he talked to the Jews that believed on him, believed that he was the Messiah, in other words. But then he said, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. He made a distinction between believers and disciples. And as a result of continuing in his word, he said, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Now, folks, the Bible gives us some insight into the spirit realm, into the unseen realm. I'm going to turn over to Ezekiel chapter 28 and read some of this chapter. It says, The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, say unto the prince of Tyrus, Thus saith the Lord God, because thine heart is lifted up, and thou hast said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of God, in the midst of the seas. Yet thou art a man, and not God. Though thou settest thine heart as the heart of God. Behold, thou art wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that they can hide from thee. With thy wisdom and with thy understanding, thou hast gotten thee riches, and hast gotten gold and silver in the, into thy treasures. And by thy great wisdom and by thy traffic, this word traffic means merchandising, buying and selling. By thy great wisdom and by thy traffic, thou hast increased thy riches, and thine heart is lifted up because of thy riches. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, because thou hast set thine heart as the heart of God, behold, therefore, I will bring strangers upon thee, the terrible of all of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of thy wisdom and they shall defile thy brightness. They shall bring thee down to the pit, and thou shalt die in the death of them that are slain in the midst of the seas. Wilt thou yet say before him that slayeth thee, I am God? But thou shalt be a man, and no God, in the hand of him that slayeth thee. Thou shalt die the deaths of the uncircumcised by the hand of strangers. For I have spoken it, saith the Lord God. Now here's a man that we really don't know much about. The only historical evidence there is that would point to who this guy is, this literal king of Tyrus, or he's called the prince of Tyrus, but the ruler of the, the region of Tyre. You may remember that uh, there were several times in Jesus' ministry where the, the kingdoms of Tyre and Sidon were referred to. Tyre is a city. It's not a country. It's a city that's on the coastline just north of Israel, what we know of as Israel, the boundaries that are established today, in the nation of Lebanon. Now, there were times where the city of Tyre, it was a, a major shipping port, and so it was a, a city that held great 
importance and influence on the people of that area. Sidon is also a city. It's north of the, where the city of Tyre is located, some, I don't know, 60, 70 miles, maybe something like that. And there were different times in their history where these two sister cities, Tyre and Sidon, would have greater influence over the region of, of that particular part of the world. But then there were times where they would have lesser influence as well. This seems to be at a time when they had, had greater influence and had uh, held a place of greater importance than, well, than, uh, than as at other times. There's a, a list of kings that was discovered in ancient writings, and it's, we know that there are a lot of errors in it. It was created by the Egyptians, and they did a lot of things and added a lot of things to their list of kings because Pharaoh was considered to be a god. The ruler of Egypt was considered to be a god. And so there are a lot of things on there that we know historically are not accurate. But it tells us that at the, this point in time that Ezekiel is talking about, that the king or the prince of Tyrus was Immobile II. Now, we don't know anything about him. We don't know anything that he ever did. But notice what the Bible tells us about this guy. I mean, he was quite a guy. So much so that he was deceived by his own wisdom into thinking that he was a god. But he was wiser than Daniel. He operated in such a way to create influence for the land, the region of the land that he had control over. This is some guy. He's quite gifted. Yet he went off the scene without anybody ever knowing anything, anybody in our day that would ever know anything about him. So he's the ruler. The Bible says specifically that he is a man, not a spirit being, but a human being. And then the, the scripture goes on in verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus. The other guy was considered to be a prince. Well, who's got more control, the prince or the king? The king is a higher office. Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Well, this can't be talking about a man now, can it? Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardius, topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, and the onyx, and the jasper, and the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanships of thy tablets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. So he is a created being. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created, till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise... They have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore I will cast thee out as profane, as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground, 
I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic. This is the word that means merchandising again. Therefore will I bring forth a fire from the midst of thee. It shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth. All they that know thee among the people shall be astonished at thee, and thou shalt be a terror, and never shalt thou be any more. Clearly this individual that's being spoken about is not a man. There was no man that could have walked in the Garden of Eden except Adam and Eve when they walked with God in the cool of the day. So we see that the Bible is telling us that there are unseen forces, spiritual forces, that rule over governments here on the earth. Now we would have to assume that that is not an equal influence on every government on the earth. In other words, there are some places where the devil has more control than others. But the devil seems to be territorial. You remember when Jesus came to the man that was in the, 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 the madman from Gadara. He lived in the cemetery and among the graves. He created a lot of trouble for the people of that area. So much so that they had captured him and put him in chains, trying to control him at different times. And he had broken those chains. They couldn't keep him bound. That's supernatural strength. Where did he get that supernatural strength? Well, it certainly didn't come from God, so it must be something to do with the devil. But Jesus comes to that place, and the guy comes and falls down before him and worships him, and Jesus begins to speak to the evil spirit that's in control of this guy. He asks him what his name is. Now, Jesus didn't go around collecting names of the devil in other situations but it must have had something to do with this man's deliverance so he answered and said my name is legion for we are many so there's one in control and others that are operating in the man's body and in his life too so Jesus cast him out cast the evil spirit out of him but the, it says and this is the only time that we have any record of anything like this it says that the evil spirits that were within him asked if they could go into the herd of swine so that they not leave that place. In other words, the devil had some kind of desire for his forces, his spiritual forces, to remain in that geographic area. The devil's territorial, folks. Well, Jesus ascended to it, and then the herd of swine ran down into the sea and choked themselves or drowned in the water. Now, I want you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 10. Here's another example. The Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, we can establish the word, establish the word of truth. Verse 1, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a name was revealed unto Daniel whose name was called Belteshazzar. And the thing was true, but the time appointed was long. And he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine into my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all, till three whole weeks were fulfilled. And in the four and twentieth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is 
the devil. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed with linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Ophaz. His body also was like the barrel, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, saw alone, I, Daniel alone, saw the vision. For the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned in, in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the voice of his words, and when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face, and my face toward the ground. And behold, a hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hand. Brother Hagin used to say that people get upset when people fall under the power of God. Just wait till he starts setting them up again. And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and now stand upright, for unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. Now the thing that Daniel was seeking revelation about was Jeremiah's prophecy. Jeremiah had prophesied that Israel would go into bondage, the bondage of the Babylonians, which were then overrun and overtaken by the Persian Empire. That's the point in time where Daniel is recounting these things. Is when the Persian Empire is, is uh, in control, has control of all the Babylonian territories, as well as the prisoners, the children of Israel that were there. And so Daniel is seeking to know the, the reality, to know the truth about when Israel would be delivered. The 70 years were up, or close to being up. And so he's trying to find out from God. Jeremiah prophesied that it would be 70 years. We're coming to the end of that. How do we get free? And so that's the answer that the angel is sent to give him. Verse 12, then he said unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come from thy, for thy words. We think a lot of time that the reason things are taking a long time is because God's not doing his part. But here the, the angel says that he was sent, he was dispatched with the revelation that Daniel was seeking the first day of his fast, 21 days prior. Well, heaven must be a long way away if it takes 21 days to get there. Verse 13 tells us what the problem was. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one in 20 days. Now notice how it says that, the prince of the kingdom of Persia. The prince of the kingdom of Persia. He's not talking about a human being. He's not talking about the literal ruler. We know who the ruler was. It was Cyrus. So he's not talking about Cyrus being the, the reason or the cause for the delay. He's saying that there's an evil spirit. He's saying there's a work of the devil in the unseen realm, in the spirit realm, that's ruling over the ruler of the, of the kingdom of Persia. That sounds very much like what we just read in Ezekiel chapter 28. 
But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. And I remained there with the kings of Persia. Notice that word king is in plural in this case. It seems that there is more than one spiritual influence that's operating over the king of Persia, over Cyrus. And now I'm come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days. For the vision is for many days. And when he had spoken such words unto me, I set my face toward the ground and I became dumb. And behold, one of the, like the similitude of the sons of men touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and, and spake and said unto him that stood before me, O my Lord, by the vision my sorrows are turned upon me, and I have retrain, retained no strength. Then it tells us in verse 20, the angel spoke again and said, Knowest thou wherefore I come unto thee? And now I will return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come. This is the, the, the Greeks that will take over and defeat the Persians soon thereafter. So here's the angel that was sent from the first day that Dan, Daniel set his face to understand the vision. But there are forces in the unseen realm that delay things. And it's real easy to get disheartened. I'm sure it would have been easy for Daniel as well to become disheartened because things aren't working out as quickly as we expect them to or want them to. Folks, the greatest weapon that the devil has to use against you and me is time. Because it's through time, specifically delay, that's where people give up. That's where people turn loose. That's where people say things or think things like, well, if it was going to happen, it would have happened by now. If God was really in the business of answering my prayer, it would have been answered by this point in time. And that's where people give up. Time is only an enemy if you understand or don't understand how it works. Now, you may remember in, in Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul is telling us by the Holy Ghost to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. He says in verse 12 that we wrestle not against, uh, against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world and wicked spirits in the heavenlies. Now this is the rulers of the darkness of this world that he's talking about. The rulers of the darkness of this world are in place to enforce the devil's influence over the rulers, physical rulers, human rulers that are in place to govern nations. I want you to look with me to Luke chapter 4. One of the temptations of the devil that came against Jesus after he was fasted for 40 days he tempted him with turning the rocks into uh, the stones into bread. But then he tempted him with something else. In verse 5, it says, And the devil, taking him up to a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Let me read that again. And the devil, taking him up to a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world 
in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I give, I will I give it. If thou therefore will worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, in him only shalt thou serve. Now back up to verse 5 again. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Those had to be his kingdoms. These are the ones that he said were delivered unto him. The governmental control of all the kingdoms of the world that he just showed Jesus in this moment of time. They had to have, at least at one point in time, been under his control. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. Is this a real bona fide temptation? By that, I mean this. If it stands as a bona fide temptation, well, let's look at the negative side first. If it's not a real bona fide temptation, then Jesus was not tempted in all points like we are. There are pages of the Bible we have to tear out if it's not a real temptation. Well, what makes it a real temptation? Several things. First of all, it has to literally be under, the, the, uh, under Satan's control so that he could give that to Jesus if Jesus worships him. Here's what that means. That means there are deals with the devil that men have made to control nations of the earth. There really was the possibility, a genuine possibility, a reality that Jesus could have made a deal with the devil and gained control of the kingdoms of the earth. Now, when we think of things like that, we look back in history, we see the destruction, the terrible things that happened under Adolf Hitler. It's easy to see or understand how he would have made a, de a deal with the devil. Now, making a deal with the devil doesn't mean everybody knows what they've done. For example, you may remember when Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? Peter spoke for the group and said, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. It says that from that point forward, Jesus began to plainly teach them, clearly teach them, no parables, but speak to them openly about going to Jerusalem being killed, crucified, and raised, being raised up the third day. But then Peter spoke again. Peter said, not so, Lord. Let this not come unto thee. You remember how Jesus dealt with him? He said, get thee behind me, Satan. Now, I'm certain that the reason that Peter said what he did, and I'm sure he was echoing the sentiment of the rest of the group too, the rest of the disciples too, who would have wanted those things to happen to Jesus? And probably out of his care, concern, and desire for these things not to happen, Peter spoke up and said, no, 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 Lord, it doesn't have to be like that. But Jesus identifies that he was speaking by the influence of the devil. Just as before, he spoke by the influence of God who revealed to him not even through signs and wonders and miracles, but revealed to him from his heart, from his spirit, that Jesus was the Messiah. 
So not everybody that operates under the influence of the devil knows that's who is influencing them. But nevertheless, doesn't change the fact that there are deals to be made with the devil concerning governmental control. As I said, we look at Hitler and we see how easily that could have been the cause of his evil in the world. And there are others that we're not as familiar with the leaders, Lenin and, and Stalin, and other leaders, Mao Zedong, that killed millions of their own people, that slaughtered millions and millions of their own people. It'd be easy to look at those people and say, well, they, were having to, they had to have been controlled by the devil. Wouldn't be too big a step to assume that they made a deal with the devil for their rule and reign over mankind. We look at the world around us, look at some of the Muslim nations, the Ayatollah in Iran, for example. It wouldn't be far fetched for us to consider that he'd made a, devil with, a deal with the devil to be in control under that part of the world that's under his influence. But, folks, I think it would be foolish for us to assume that it's not happening in our own country. Now, I'm not here to name names, although some come readily to mind. Who are operating in concert or in league with that which we know is ungodly. And trying to impose it upon the rest of the country at the same time. The only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. The church has done nothing for a long time. And there's a portion of the church, I hope it's a minority portion, but I really don't know how to tell. Maybe we'll see in the next few days. But there's a segment of the church world that's in league with the devil not saying they know that but just as Paul said God would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth there's a lot of people that don't see and know the truth they don't recognize that Satan has unseen forces that are pushing for the adoption of his agenda I was praying a number of years ago. It was after President Obama had been elected in 2008. And I knew, I knew it even before then, but I was reminded how the Bible instructs us to pray for leaders and kings and those who are in authority. And I was just talking to the Lord about it. I talked to him just like I talked to anybody else. And I was talking to the Lord about it, telling him how hard a time I was going to have praying for President Obama. 
and those that were in power in his administration. And the Lord asked me what my responsibility was. And I spoke the word. I said, I'm supposed to pray for kings and those in authority. And then the Lord asked me, who's in authority? Well, I was looking just in one, down one track. And I said, well, President Obama and his administration are those that are in authority. And the Lord said something to me that just turned me upside down. He said, I thought in America the people were given authority. Well, that gave me the answers I need, needed to pray for the next eight years. I began praying for the people of, the, of America, for the church to have their eyes open to the truth. Folks, I didn't spend a whole lot of time praying for President Obama to see the truth. Because there were a lot of things that we were aware of where he saw the truth and still went against it. Now just as we see through this temptation of Jesus how people can make deals with the devil to gain a place of governmental authority. If they're in league with the devil and owe to the devil their place what are they going to do to change their place so they lose that authority? What I'm saying is we can spend the rest of our lives praying for people that are in this situation that Jesus was tempted with to change their course. But for the most part, those are going to be wasted prayers. The Bible says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Well, if prayer can be effectual or effective, then it can also be ineffective. I think a lot of Christians have taken just a small part of what they think the Word says and have made their own prayers ineffective. And that was really what I was talking to the Lord about because I knew if the only prayer I prayed was for President Obama to have his eyes open to the truth and follow the truth, I'm going to be wasting a lot of time. Why would God tell us to pray something that's not going to work in every case? That's not the prayer life Jesus had. That's not the prayer life Paul had. When Paul is talking about the persecution that's identified as his thorn in the flesh, when he's talking to the Lord about this persecution, it says that Paul says of himself, for this thing I besought the Lord three times that it might be taken from me. Now, folks, with all the persecution that we know of that Paul suffered, Paul has come to the recognition, the understanding, the truth that the people that are persecuting him aren't really his enemies. His enemy is the unseen forces, the spiritual forces of the devil that are stirring these people up to bring persecution against him. And so Paul prays three times for this to be taken away from him. Folks, that's not three times an hour. That's three times. 
Now, what does that tell us about Paul's prayer life? I don't think we have a clearer definition that Paul had an understanding, a relationship with God himself so that praying for something three times would seem way out of the ordinary. I read it like this, like Paul is saying, and this was so difficult that I wound up praying about this for three whole times. Man, that's the kind of prayer life to have, isn't it? He didn't get an answer or didn't get the answer he wanted after the first time, so he had to pray a second time. And he didn't get the answer or the one he was looking for after the second time, so he had to pray the third time, three whole times. Folks, there are people that have joined themselves to the devil's agenda that no matter what, whether Jesus himself appeared to them in physical form, they wouldn't turn loose of what they've got. In the Old Testament, there was a time where God spoke to the prophet and he said, leave Ephraim alone. He's joined himself to his idols. So here's God telling the prophet, it won't do any good to keep praying for Ephraim, which was one of the tribes of Israel, because they've made their choice. Folks, there comes a point in time, there comes a place where God will honor a person's choice, even if it's the wrong one. Now, under most circumstances, in most situations, if someone's eyes, spiritual eyes, were open to see the path they were on, we have to assume that they would change course. But folks, that's not always true in every case either. We certainly want to pray for the unsaved to have their eyes open. 1 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that Satan is, is the god of this world. It doesn't mean he's the God of the planet. It doesn't even mean he's the God of this system. It means he's the God for a period of time over this world. His influence will work for a period of time. And the way that he uses his influence to his greatest gain is that he blinds the minds of people so that they can't see the truth of the gospel. Who would go purposely into the pit of hell if they could see that's where they were going? Well, we would assume that would be very few. But the reality is, if you've made that deal with the devil, maybe even seeing where you're headed is not enough to change the course. I'm glad that's not up to me to decide. So Jesus has offered this deal to gain control of the kingdoms of the world. 
Now, when 2016 came around, I was just sure, absolutely convinced that Hillary Clinton would be elected president of the United States. And I say this to my shame, but it was the first time in over 40 years that I discounted the power of God. What I mean by that is that I had allowed what I heard and what I thought I knew to create a stronghold in my life. And I looked at it. I've been trying to find a different way to say this because I hate the way this sounds, but it's exactly what it was. I thought it was something that was too big for God. And I went so far as to say things in church to try to prepare people for what was coming. Now, the reason that I say that I say this to my shame is because there's never been another area in my life in the last 40 years, 40 years from that time, where I didn't look to the promises of God and expect Him to fulfill them. I learned a lot. from that election outcome. And folks, if you go back and look at what happened and how everything fell into the place, it was a miraculous result. I compare that to this, this election that we're facing. And I see how many more of the people of God that are praying now than were praying back then. Now, don't get me wrong. It wasn't like I was praying against the truth back then. I'm praying for people's eyes to be open. And that's what brought about the miracle. People began to see the truth. I'm glad my prayers were not all God had to, had to go on. But I'm also still glad that I was able to contribute even with the wrong thinking in my mind. Now I see the number of people in this, in this country, Christians, who are praying. You remember in Thessalonians, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, in the second letter that he wrote to them, and he identifies the only reason that the devil can't bring out the Antichrist now is because of the presence of the church here on the earth. Well, if the presence of the church, merely the presence of the church, can stop the devil from bringing forth his man, the one that will make the ultimate deal with him for governmental control, If just the presence of the church can stop that from taking place, what great power is made available by the prayers of the church in this most important hour?
There's two places in the book of Genesis Well, I'll just start at the beginning. When Abraham was 75 years old, the Lord appeared to him. And one of the promises that he made to him was that he'd have a child. Sarah was 10 years younger than him. And it was still possible at that point in time, according to the functioning of their bodies, to have a child. But year after year after year goes by, And they finally come to the place where Abraham is 99, Sarah is 89 or 90, and God reminds him of the promise of having a child. Abraham has given up. In Genesis chapter 17, it tells us that Abraham has given up on that promise. He just asked for Ishmael to be blessed. Ishmael was the child that Abraham had with uh, Sarah's handmaid, Hagar. Ishmael is the, the father of the Arab nations in the world. And so God says, well, because he's your son, I will bless him and make his name great. But that's not the child of promise. And he tells him something. God has to get him back. Faith begins where the will of God is known. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Since Abraham is in unbelief, God's got to get him back over to the place where he's believing in order to bring about the promise that he's declared to him. So he says to Abraham, this time next year you'll have a child. And Abraham laughs. Some translations say rejoices. But based on what God spoke to him after he laughed, it's pretty clear that he was aghast, dumbfounded by God reminding him of the promise. That's been almost 25 years since God first told him about this child of promise. 